Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Welcome to the Beaver Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kirsty Pickles, who is a clinical associate professor in equine medicine at Nottingham University. She graduated from the University of Glasgow in 1996 and completed a residency and PhD at the Royal School of Veterinary Studies in Edinburgh and became a diplomat of the European College of Equine Internal Medicine in 2009. Her areas of interest include trigeminal mediated head shaking. Today we are discussing her recent article titled Trigeminal Mediated Head Shaking, a Diagnostic Challenge. To introduce trigeminal mediated head shaking, which was previously termed idiopathic head shaking, this produ- presents a diagnostic and therapeutic challenge to the equine clinician. And um, we are going to discuss any advances in the diagnosis of this disease. So would you please take us through basically the presentation of this um, syndrome in horses and and a brief diagnostic plan that you would start off to differentiate between other causes of head shaking compared to trigeminal mediated head shaking? Sure. So the typical presentation is a mature, um, so sort of median age of onset is nine or 10. Um, There probably is uh, overrepresentation of geldings. We don't understand why. So it tends to be mature onset, although can occur, I think the youngest is about two that's been um, presented and the oldest is, you know, sort of about 30. So it can spread over a wide range. And um, the owner's complaint is normally that the horse is becoming more difficult to handle or ride because it's shaking its head a lot. Um, And often owners will describe signs of nasal irritation, so snorting, rubbing their muzzle, um, maybe resisting going forwards um, and violent head shakes, um, predominantly in a vertical direction, but but sometimes in a rotational manner. So that that's the main way that they present. Sometimes they don't always present in the first year of onset to uh, a veterinary surgeon because the owners tried several things at home first, um, and they may or may not be seasonal so if if they've been going for more than a year the owner might have noticed that the symptoms start in uh, spring or summer that's the typical time of onset and then they regress over the winter and then restart sometimes you know more or less exactly to the same week the following year so about two-thirds are seasonal in presentation and um and about one third on non-seasonal, so they will keep going all year round. So horses will often sort of spontaneously go into remission over the, the winter months, and that's something we don't fully understand why. And um, so that's how they present. So then they, um, ideally, we want to exclude all other causes for this behaviour. Now, if you're familiar with head shaking horses, then watching these horses exhibit this behavior is is really i would i'd say almost pathonomic it's it is not pathonomic because there can be other things that look very similar but it certainly gives you a really good clue that this could be a trigeminal mediated head shaker 
Um, but we, it's really important that we go through the full diagnostic repertoire with all horses because um, we now know that about 10% will have something else going on and we need to um, try and find those causes. So that would be, um, you know, lots of diagnostics around the head. So looking in the eyes, looking in the mouth endoscopy of the upper respiratory tract, including the guttural pouches, uh, imaging of the head, um, ideally CT. The problem is, you know, obviously these are um, not necessarily cheap and or available everywhere. So CT is definitely more sensitive at picking up pathology in the head than, than radiology, and we've got some good evidence for that now. So if CT is an option, I would definitely go for that. Um, and then some people perform perform, sorry, diagnostic nerve blocks. Personally, I don't do a lot of those because, um, one, they're not particularly specific or, or sensitive at, at picking up trigeminal mediated head shaking. So really, we're looking to get a, to obtain a diagnosis of trigeminal mediated head shaking. We're looking at excluding any other pathology like middle ear disease or ocular disease, dental disease, um, sinusitis, those kind of things. Um, and really that's currently what is performed in clinics to try and achieve a diagnosis. So it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Okay. That's, that's, um, very interesting. Thank you. I, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. Diagnostics have come a long way, um, since for example, even 10 years ago to be able to differentiate between another cause of trigeminal mediated head shaking compared to actual idiopathic head shaking. And, um, can we please maybe go into a bit more detail about why the nerve blocks aren't really that satisfactory in aiding our diagnosis? Sure. So if you perform a maxillary nerve block, it's going to anesthetize the maxillary nerve, but that's really only going to tell you that there's something in the area that the maxillary nerve innovates. So for example, if you have, um, a, a periapical abscess of a maxillary cheek tooth, then that may respond very well to a maxillary nerve block. So it doesn't actually tell you, it doesn't help tell you that the there's a trigeminal mediated head shaker. It's just telling you that it's, you know, there's pain in the area that is innervated by the maxillary nerve. Okay. Okay, thank you. I also read, I think, in one of your previous articles that said one of your that when you anesthetize the nerve, particularly, doesn't seem to reduce the sensory um, response of that nerve. So that's also maybe why we thought that there was possibly still some residual head shaking despite the nerve being blocked. Is that is that something you still, um, you know, kind of would be advocating? Um, yes. To, to some degree, I, I, I guess I, I stopped doing it because it didn't change what I did next. And if, and if I do a diagnostic test that isn't going to change what I do next, I don't see the point of performing it. Yeah, good. That, yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really good, um, a good approach that people can definitely take forward from this. Once we have decided that it's trigeminal mediated head shaking, um, what is our, our next step? It really depends on client finances and what we think is the trigger in that horse. The The key to successful management um, is, it, well, it's a combination of both those things, to be honest. But if we can identify the trigger for the horse, then we can try and either avoid the trigger 
or reduce the trigger. So, for example, horses that are light triggered, UV triggered, they may get a lot of benefit from a UV blocking mask. And it needs to be um, a very high percentage UV blocking. I always recommend over 90% uh, blocking. A lot of the masks available will say that they're UV blocking, but will only block about 10%. And and that's not going to be a significant amount to make a difference to the head shaking. If we have horses that um, are particularly triggered by sensations around the muzzle, then a lot of those horses will respond to a nose net. So there are some really simple measures that can make a massive difference and and make the horse much, much um, more comfortable and less symptomatic. Um, So they're they're very simple things we can do. We always tend to try those first because they're, they're simple. And I always encourage owners to keep a diary so they can try and, um, really pinpoint the trigger. You know, there's some horses that, are very clearly triggered by rain or snow, things like that. Um, so sometimes it's it's um, you know modifying your riding pattern around the weather, things like that. Um, in in other horses that have failed to respond to those more simple measures, um, we can try things like the percutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, um, which is still one of our best treatments although there's certainly you know horses that 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 don't respond to that um but that's still one of the the better options that we have but that is quite an expensive treatment so isn't an option for everybody and um is only performed in in some centers the other thing we we generally recommend doing is supplementing with some magnesium um it is it's been shown to be beneficial to supplement both magnesium and boron, but boron isn't um, an approved feedstuff in Europe. So there's no um, availability of boron in, in the UK. But um, if there's people in America listening, then that you can certainly supplement with magnesium and boron there. Um, but we usually recommend supplementing with a as pure a form of magnesium as possible and in an absorbable uh, as possible form so something like a magnesium malate um, is really well absorbed okay okay thank you so much are there any um drug therapies that could possibly be investigated um to to help control the symptoms clinical signs there's no good um pharmaceutical uh control really at the minute odd horses respond to antihistamines um, if they get really, really bad, we might end up putting them on gabapentin. But, you know, generally they don't have a – it's difficult to ride them. They tend to be um, sedated a little bit when when they get to a therapeutic level. I mean, I've known really, really severe horses, you know, be given phenobarb and things like that. But then, you, you know, if the owner's wanting to actually do something with the horse, that then that's very difficult. So there's really currently not any good – pharmacological agents to to be used in in my opinion um although we are doing research looking at um which receptors may play a role in the in the disease and that may offer um hope in the future but at the moment um you know there's really no good drugs per se that that i could recommend they you know previously 
people have talked about using carbamazepine, but that's very poorly absorbed in the horse. I've had next to no success with that. And um, periactin, cyproheptadine is, is the other drug that people may be familiar with for head shaking. And I have had some success with that, but you know, generally not a lot. So it and it also gets expensive over a longer term. And oftentimes horses may be sedated at a at the dosage required to control the head shaking signs. So not something I use a lot of these days. Okay. Okay. Um I also read with interest your you know further obviously not diagnostics that are available to the general equine like clinical practitioner, but further from more of a research point of view, the diagnose, diagnostic tools that you're using to be able to further refine, um, you know, the pathogenesis of this disease. Um, could we maybe discuss a, a bit more about that? Well, if you want a de- definitive diagnosis, um, you can do um, some electrophysiology of the trigeminal nerve. So you can look at the threshold for firing of the, of the trigeminal nerve. Um, and that's, you know, the, the study that was performed by Monica Allerman and UC Davis. And um, I was lucky enough to be part of that team, which um, were the team that showed the horses with trigeminal mediated head shaking had a reduced threshold for activation compared for to control horses. Um, but that's pretty invasive and um, requires general anesthesia. It's not something that could be done as a diagnostic aid. Um, we were interested in looking at quantitative sensory testing, um, which they use in people with trigeminal neuralgia, but it's, it requires the patient to feed back um, on pain sensation or altered sensation. So in, in my hands, um, I had very little success with that. Um, whereas um, I think, you know, it you can modify it perhaps and, and get some success, but I, I really struggle to, to, to utilize that. We have recently been looking at using um, an accelerometer to quantitate the head movements because it's very, very difficult to assess severity in these horses because it's an intermittent disease. It can change from day to day. And on the activity of the horse, most horses are worse at exercise than at rest. And, um, and so it's very difficult to objectively assess these horses, both on presentation and also in monitoring their response to treatment. Um, and so we've been looking at use of an accelerometer on the pole of the horse. And um, one of my collaborators, uh, Veronica Roberts from the University of Bristol, is going to be presenting this uh, data at Beaver, late Beaver Congress later this week. And um, and that's showing really good diagnostic potential, actually, to be able to differentiate trigeminal-mediated head shaking from control horses, lame horses, and non-trigeminal-mediated head shaking. So they would be the horses that present with head shaking but have something else found on those ancillary diagnostics that... Um, there is a reason like middle ear disease or sinusitis or something like that. So that, I think, is the way that that diagnostics are going to be and also monitoring response to treatment. And that's um, looking really, really promising. Oh, that's wonderful. I think that will really be beneficial to these horses because, to my understanding, it's an extremely actually painful condition. Um, yeah, yeah, the people who 
have trigeminal neuralgia, which the majority of those, they have a slightly different, um, they actually have pathology of the nerve, whereas there is no pathology of the nerve in trigeminal mediated head shaking. It's a functional disorder of the nerve. Um, But the way that neuropathic pain is described by people with trigeminal neuralgia is itching, tingling, burning, electric shock-like sensations. And they describe it as extremely debilitating. And actually, there's really quite a high suicide rate of of patients with human trigeminal neuralgia because it is so debilitating. And the pain, neuropathic pain, is so difficult to, to, to control and to manage. You can't control it often. It's a case of managing it. Okay. Shame. I think I think that's something possibly we would need to really get across to owners who may not appreciate the the severity of this kind of condition, particularly associated with the discomforts that the horses are experiencing. Yeah, and it's not just the owners that we need to convince; it's insurance companies as well. To be honest, because some of these horses, you know, if they're head shaking at rest and they can't even be pain free, just you know, at pasture, then, you know, that's really not a good life for a horse. And I have had insurance companies refuse to, to pay out for humane destruction of a horse with, with, you know, really severe head shaking. And, you know, I, I think that is, it becomes a welfare issue when the horse is head shaking at rest, standing in a field. Yeah, absolutely. I I think besides the, the pain that they experience, it detracts from the normal functions of the horse, you know, just simple eating and drinking and... and yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. Oh, shame, that's that's awful. Um, okay, well, I think that that gives us a really good, um, you know, kind of where we are at this point with, with the diagnosis and, and management of the disease, which I think there's still a lot that we can learn, but I, I really appreciate the time um, that you've given us today and, and all the information. No problem. Thank you very much, Kirsty. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.